Welcome to Holding Center, a podcast created to help you own and hold center stage, not only on show day, but also in your life. I'm your host, Ashley Markham, owner of Myo Strength, and joined with me is my co-host, Ashley Spoker, owner of B&B Fit. Let's hold center. Yo, what's going on, Dr. Scott? <laughs> That's your, I love it. That's the intro. It has to be that yo. That's the intro. On. That works. I'm good. I'm good. It's a bright, beautiful morning in Florida. I'm podcasting. As we just noted, I'm a podcast horse, so I'm doing what I love. So here we are it. with another animal work. lover, too. Yes, so yes. We love our animals. We were, we were clowning around before the podcast, but where are you at in Florida? I'm in the Fort Myers area. It's the, it's called Golden Gate Estates. It's it's east okay. of east of Naples, um, like three hours south of Tampa, about two hours west of Miami, like straight across the Everglades. So, like, so, I would say pretty deep in Florida, then. Like, yeah, oh yeah, okay. yeah. You you can't really go if you go to go any further south. You'd really have to go. Well, there's really nothing down there. You have to um, you have to go down to the Florida Keys, literally. Mm. Okay. Okay. Cause I'm up here in Charleston. So I'm always wondering, cause I'm like, I know Charleston's close to Florida, but like, depending on where you're at within Florida, it's oh, either yeah. like four hours or it's like, Oh no, it's like eight. Charleston's like eight or 10, I think for me, something like that. I, I just Ooh, did, I just traveled through there. I think I went to Charleston. I did. I planned so many routes. I just drove to Vermont. Um, yeah. A month ago. That was a route, but I went to Charleston. That was a twin. 20 hour drive, I think. So God bless about you. I couldn't do Florida, it. <laughs> I had the dogs. I like taking trips though. I dig it. So if you don't like to drive, it would be just pure torture, but I don't mind it. Yeah, as long as you have a way that you can make it fun and enjoyable, that's the important thing. I yeah, that that's the important thing. But I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast today. But I really would love to learn a little bit more about your background, kind of like how you you know, got into bodybuilding yourself. Like I can't see my bookshelf back there, but I have like, you know, your, your, one of your books okay. um, back there for sure. But I just want to like learn more about you. How did you become like bodybuilder? Maybe even talked about like you being Dr. Scott and just kind of like <clears throat> hear about your love of the sport that we both just, you know, love and want to represent well. If Scott McNally sees this, he'll laugh because he knows that I dislike the Dr. Scott thing. And that's don't worry about it. It's no, <clears throat> not a big deal. I'm kind of used to it, but I dislike the doctor moniker because I think it creates space between people. When you say doctor, it's like a, it's a title, right? True. Um, yeah. And I just noticed this so long, so much in academia. Um, I had students, I would just say, just call me Scott. It's fine. And someone just could, they couldn't do it because some of the other instructors that would have been basically, they would have been banished from the class if they'd done such a thing. <laughs> so, I'm literally just a, a kid as far as I can, as long as back as I can remember, I wanted to lift weights. There was no place to do it growing up. I grew up in a small town, Quincy, Illinois. There literally wasn't a place to go or my mom would let me go. Finally, I got to start. I kind of would creep up to my dad had some weights up above our garage in an attic space. And I would creep up there and, and work out probably when I was six, seven, eight. But I finally kind of started when I was 11. Because we it was a, it was available in, in junior high, and I just loved it from the get go. I I did sports. I swam. I wrestled a year. I played football. I just loved the weight training, though. It's something about just digging in. It's the meditative effect. It's just a, it's just attuned with me really, really well. Went to college. Um, 
studied German and physics, decided to want to become a German physicist, teach physics in Germany. Um, and then I, I got to do something. I had a several um, possibilities that wouldn't have made my family proud <laughs> if I went down. The, what do I like to do, right? <clears throat> become a professional beer drinker. Um, I didn't do that. <laughs> I'd like to work out. I wanted to become the world's best personal trainer because I just loved, loved the, the gym. Literally, I figured I can spend all day in the gym. I'll be happy. And then I found out I love teaching. When I started graduate school, I got the opportunity to teach. I got, was a TA and I totally fell in love with that. So I'm like, well, I want to do this at whatever level I would like to. I need to get a PhD and I love learning too. So I just, I just been sort of following my bliss along the way the entire time. And um, there was a professor once, this is one of those kind of classic stories, um, two exercise psychology students were in the um, the mail room. This is the University of Georgia when it's a grad school. And they're, they're complaining about all the tests they had to take and all the work they had to do or something like that. And the professor came in and kind of overheard them while he's making photocopies. And he turned to them and he said, he said, you guys realize that this is the good stuff. When you become a professor, then you got to start working. All you got to do now is learn, right? Yeah. That's the beautiful part. So I've tried to kind of hold on. I've tried to like, I'm like, Peter Pan or whatever. I don't ever want to grow up. <laughs> I've tried to just keep on being in the learning space as much as possible um, and just doing the things that I like to do. So that just led me to just, I just let my curiosity lead my way. And that led me to a PhD and becoming Dr. Scott, I just little Scott, but that moniker, you know, Scott McNally kind of started that. He would refer to me to that and he just couldn't stop it. And now everyone <laughs> kind of caught on and it, it continues. <clears throat> so Geez, um, that was, I got my PhD in 99. So I've been at this for a, a hot minute. And I uh, I wanted to help people as well. I decided to leave academia, yeah. became an acupuncturist, opened a gym where I had an acupuncture practice and I was doing educational things and ran the gym for about four years. Um, that didn't quite work out. I was, I felt like I was, wasn't able to sort of fulfill my personal mission sure. as a gym owner because I was doing it by myself at the end. So I was like, and I was out, I'm like, not there's anything wrong with this whatsoever. I really like being a gym owner, but I was putting like putting flyers on people's windows, you know, guerrilla marketing, that kind of stuff. And I felt like that was a little bit of a waste of my talent. It wasn't like my my spot to help people. But I try to sort of position myself, where I think where I can do the best good is to is to do podcasts like this, to be an educator yeah. in the space of bridging science and bridging practice. And kind of combining those two. So figuring out like when someone does a, you know, a experiment in the ivory tower and they're talking about a fascicle penation angle and things like that, I can say, well, what does that actually mean? How does it make sense to us? How do you turn around and make use of that? So I've just kind of been doing that. And I've managed to do consultations and do seminars and write a couple of books along the way and work with good people like John Meadows, as you mentioned mm -hmm. before, and I wrote for elite FDS for a while. And, um, just kind of, uh, I'm sort of, I sort of run my own little show. I don't, um, I'll mention them because I really, really like how they do business. But you, are you familiar with examine.com? I, I am a lifelong subscriber. A funny okay. story, you mentioned that. Um, okay. They sent me an interview. They, they were like, hey, will you give us like 20 minutes of your time to interview how we're doing? I was like, absolutely. I think feedback is very important for self-improvement. And they were like, great. Why either send you a $25 Amazon gift card or we will give you lifetime access and like unlimited gold, like the highest tier membership for oh, the rest sure. of your life. And I was like, I will choose that lifetime membership. And I am oh. on that website 
if not daily, at least multiple times a week. That's awesome. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm jealous now. <laughs> I know. Tell me that. I actually interviewed with them at one point in time, but I didn't get the job to be one of their writers. I didn't, I didn't get it. Someone I, someone I um, referred to them actually took got the job that I was applying for, but that's okay. He's a great guy. He deserved it. He's, he's better suited for that than I was. Um, but they are, if people don't know, they, they, they don't affiliate themselves with any supplement manufacturers, supplement companies. They're literally as neutral as they possibly can. They do about every other, maybe every three years, they do an April Fool's where they say, you know, we're going to start selling stuff on Amazon or some shit. And it's, of course, it's bullshit. They're not doing that. But I, I try to stay as much as possible in that space. I helped out John doing um, uh, supplement descriptions for his products. And he's someone I know personally. Dante Trudell is a personal friend of mine, known him even before he started True Protein, which then became True Nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um that's my protein so, company. I use true yeah. nutrition. I love okay. Dante. He's cool. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I, I know, I know those people personally, but otherwise I just try to be as neutral as I can and, yeah. you know, um, and not try to, so I can, so that I can help people as, mm-hmm. as a sort of a neutral arbitrary source, so to speak. And if they want to listen to what I have to say, then that's awesome. If not, then that's, that's cool too. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. I love that mentality. Tell us a little bit more about like your bodybuilding career because you've designed like a really cool approach on how to be your own bodybuilding coach, but that obviously took trial and error on your part. So kind of walk us through like your own bodybuilding career. Lots of error, lots and lots of error. <laughs> um, gosh. So I started in, in, um, in 97 was my first show. And uh, last one was two or three years ago, 2000, I think. So, um, I basically, the thing for me, and this is where the book comes from as well. Um, and I'm going to sound like a dinosaur and kind of old school, but when I started, there was no such thing as a coach. We didn't use coach. There were personal trainers. Mm-hmm. You know, there was Vince Garanda, the guru and people, Joe Weider was working with people and Chad Nichols was around and Chris Aceto, people like that. But, yeah. but most people were just doing it on their own. <clears throat> you know, that's a gigantic water bottle from the, that thing looks it's a like a gallon. <laughs> Yeah, but it looks like 25 gallons because of the camera. The f- it's like, yeah, for size, like this is like a gallon and this is my like little tumbler. tumbler are you coffee. are you like three foot two? <laughs> I'm five foot seven. I'm actually I a know. taller woman. <laughs> I'm just joking. I, I know that. It was just sort of funny. It looks so huge. Um, so I really relish the exploration um, and then all the learning and figuring these things on out on my on my own. And the thing that I, I'll mention sort of an aside that's important, I mention this often in podcasts, is that what's going on in the scientific laboratories is the same thing that's going on in the gym. It's the same. This is not a different reality. It's not like those experiments take place on Saturn and there's gravity's different and, and people's genetics are different if they're lab subjects as opposed to someone who's in the gym. You just have to be able to interpret that information. So I was always sort of being geeking out on the science as I went along and just trying different things out, trying to make sense of things as I went along. Um, so gosh, it's funny. I, I started figuring out what worked for me and around 2000 or so I'd come up with a, my, the way I was training that seemed to be most effective. And then I happened across DC training, Dante's program, dog crap mm-hmm. his, his cycles for pennies was one of his, um, original post. It was a monster. You can still find it. Um, it's talking about drugs, er- yeah. steroid cycles, what they refers to, but it's, it was his training. He, and he tried to be anonymous posting his dog crap and people figured out who he was. He wanted to be able to send this out there without people jumping on him, knowing who he was. 
It turned out I was doing almost everything exact. I was training exactly in that fashion, except I wasn't doing rest pause sets. I wasn't doing a, a type of cluster set, but I was trained very, very similarly. Um, so along the way, um, Dante, uh, the person who's doing training for him, um, fell to the wayside and I took over a bunch of clients that had just sort of been stranded and I was the official DC trainer for a while. So I got to do DC training with people and manipulate that. Dante trusted me to manipulate that with a little bit. And I, of course, confer with him. We're on um, Intense Muscle, a, a, a board that's run by a guy named Skip Hill, right? And we were super moderators. So we were talking literally on a daily basis for six or eight years on there. So I learned a lot during that time. And eventually, and I'm competing along the way too. Um, I met Dave Hun Henry when I was living in Arizona, I think in like 2003, shortly after I got there in Tucson. And we started training together. And I suggested actually that Dave train with Dante. So I got to see Dante train Dave. You know, that's as kind of classic as it gets, right? For um, sure. Yeah. And I just did what Dave did. And I came to learn that I can't do what Dave does. When we first started training, we were training the way Dave, and Dave could train any way he wanted, and he was going to make great gains. Um, I think I like to think that he did optimize it to some degree over the years. We made progress when I coached him. Um, but I tried training with high volume with Dave. And of course, I like to train hard. I just, that's just always been my natural inclination. And I, I tend to be competitive in certain situations. So Dave was stronger than me. I tried to, tried to hang with him. He would do a set of 10 and leave several reps in the tank. I would do a set of eight and then do rest pause until I got 11 reps so I could beat him. And that destroyed me. I totally, at one point in time, I had just a full body inflammation. I know a couple of people this has happened to. You get done with a workout and your whole body aches, not just what you just trained, not just yeah. the muscles, not just the joints, everything as if like you're having some sort of anaphylactic reaction. So I learned that wasn't the way for me. I learned that, that that's <laughs> not going to function. Um, and I learned a lot through, uh, through errors, through actually training through injuries. The thing that popped in my head when I was thinking about what we might, might talk about today in regards to fortitude training was pump sets and the idea of doing higher rep sets. Um, I figured out from small tears in particular in my triceps where it popped a little bit, um, mm -hmm. had to train around it, no pressing for quite a while and easing my way back into training. Of course, I started off with very, very light weights and I've been training really heavy, you know, like strict tricep press downs with the whole stack and then a 45 or 245 pinned onto the thing, that kind of shit, you know? And I dropped back to doing, you know, like four plates, six plates, eight plates. I was doing 40, 50 reps. And before I was even back to where I felt like I hadn't regained my strength and I hadn't fully recovered, perhaps from the injury, my triceps were looking better than they ever had. And it was because this was some novel training stimulus. It was a very high rep one, one that I wouldn't have thought because I was so focused on heavy, heavy, heavy progressive overload at that time would have been nearly as effective. So I took that, and then along that time, I think maybe a couple of years later, the first studies comparing high reps with low reps, lighter weight with heavier weight came out, showing at least in newbies, we have equivalent, equivalent amount of muscle growth in the short term. So it showed you it can be effective. As we know, you do a Widowmaker, you do a high rep set, especially for legs, those can grow some good muscle. Um, but this was working for triceps. So I started incorporating that and Dante had people doing, he had some people doing, I think he, um, he had Dave doing these. He had some people doing 50 rep sets sometimes for legs, right? Those are just brutal. There's nasty. 
nasty as hell. That's mean. <laughs> yeah, but you know, if you want it, you'll make it. You'll make it happen. True. Amen. Um, there's a there's a meta analysis. You probably subscribe to Stronger by Science. Take it. I'm do. I have Science Direct as one of my subscriptions. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's that's uh that's for reverse lookups. You can find out who cited what. Um. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a that's like a database service. Stronger by Eric Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles, those guys. Um. They write. They they just. This came across my email just here. That there's a meta analysis that came out came out summarizing and analyzing statistically um, all the studies that had looked at how many reps in reserve people typically have. And of course it ca- caught my eye, the email, I'm, I'm plugging them. I, I pay for their subscription. I don't, they don't give me any kickbacks. I don't have a, a for sure. or anything, but it's good. It's good information. Um, and literally the, I think the title was most lifters trained to light. Um, people typically, if I remember the numbers correctly from this meta analysis, people pick self-select literally about 50% of what the run rate max is some in the 50% range, like less than 60% habitually sort of the average, even when they're doing heavier sets, people, the average person, at least according to these studies, these, most of them are probably going to be newbies. Mm-hmm. People don't train nearly as hard as um, they might like to think that they do. And it, it, if you go, I don't know where you train there in Charleston, but you go into your average gym, even even a gym where you've got some people with impressive physiques, it's rare to see someone just going for broke, just mm-hmm. training like it's their last day on this earth, right? People leave. Ton, individual studies are aware of these, but the meta-analysis shows that it's a pretty consistent effect. People don't train as hard as they possibly could mm-hmm. um, because it's a lot of people, it's not fun. They don't have the screws loose that drive them to do that. The inner anger or the joy, whatever it might be. I mean, you could be on the, Kai Green has a, a famous interview when he talked about rage, you know, mm-hmm. and he, he attributed rage to Ronnie's ability to train really, really hard. Um, and maybe that was true. I, I like to think of Ronnie, you know, dancing around on the, on the hack squat, you know, doing this shit. Like Ronnie had some joy when he was, tra- when he's screaming, yeah, buddy and lightweight, nothing but a peanut like that's that's having fun like he's on a roller coaster it's so funny you mentioned that because i actually on spotify there is a a one minute 30 second song of just ronnie coleman screaming every top set that is what is in my ears i am training with ronnie it is like one of the purest joys that i get he's like screaming yeah buddy and i'm like internally thinking like yeah buddy lightweight because like mentally if i'm telling myself the weight is light even though we both know it's fucking not it yeah. is going to be a smoother set because like i prepared my brain for this set i know mm-hmm. it's gonna suck but i know it's going to suck and it's going to be done because i'm going to win even though i fail it's like it's mm-hmm. this screw loose mentality like you said yeah, and, and you can entrain that over years that becomes a habitual thing it's a pavlovian response that you can entrain in yourself without a doubt jack up your dopamine levels endorphins whatever it is and let let Ronnie be your guide, you know, through those badass sets. <laughs> it's total totally the way to do it. So, um, as far as the heavy, the lighter weight, the pump sets, and people not training training to um, truly to failure, that was in my mind too. Along the way of when coaching people and developing fortitude training as well is, and people have told me this: the way I've set up the training system 
um, is that you literally have to train as hard as you possibly can. You're going, you're going to failure. And even with the pump sets kind of quote unquote beyond failure, depending on what you do and how you auto-regulate those sets. So one of the key things that I was trying to create with fortitude training, aside from putting together principles of periodization, the different set types, they take advantage of the effective reps that come from doing a cluster set the way I've set it up, higher rep sets with the pump sets, heavier training with progressive overload with the loading sets, like all these, this, this recipe for progress, according to the science, is also create a system in terms of these set types that sort of ensures people are going to train as hard as they can mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, the loading sets you leave, this is the effective reps and reps and reserve. The term wasn't available when I first wrote fortitude training. Um, but I, but I, I incorporated that, especially just for practical purposes, because those sets are done with a timed interval that you're not taking everything to failure. Cause then you're, if you truly go to failure at the bottom of your squat rack with the bar, you're crawling out from under, right? Mm -hmm. That can be done safely if the squat rack or you, of course, if you have a, a spotter. But the other the other set types, the muscle rounds and those pump sets, those are those are taken as far as the person is literally willing to push themselves. Um, and that's all you can do. But the prescription is is to be ultimately always safe, but to train literally bumping up against your personal limits. Um, and I think there's something to say for that with beginners. You can train with 10 reps reserve and you'll make progress. Right? Yep. You really can because um, the stimulus is so fresh and new. It's so novel at that point in time. But I think that over the course of time, the more advanced you get, and um, people ask me this, I get people say, you need to have a, this just happened um, a couple of weeks ago. Someone you need to have a debate with Mike Isertel about reps and reserve. We actually had a, we actually had a conversation two, three years ago on the, um, on uh, Steve Hall's podcast. Um, and we agreed, like, when you get really, really advanced, you're going to have to train harder in some way, shape, or form. You can't be leaving um, a bunch of reps in the tank. So that was sort of my progression personally. And eventually, I developed fortitude training because of things I'd seen in doing DC training myself and with clients. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, and I also, I also tried on Titan training. I always got to give credit um, to that book. The, the muscle round terminology comes from the Titan training book. Um, but I couldn't make heads nor tails of how he actually wanted people to do that in a way that mm -hmm. incorporated progressive overload. So I just, I interpret it as doing as making it as hard as possible, which ended up being kind of a mistake because I trained myself into oblivion. I went into right. real, like real overtraining for the first time ever. Um, yeah. I made great progress for the first few weeks, but then I just totally blew myself out of yeah. the water. Um, so I just learned from a lot of mistakes, like the overtraining mistake from having had having had um, injuries, learning from those. Mm -hmm. That's what I did it with my shows. The peak week, people come to me for the way I've constructed peak week. And that's in my book. That's in the publication that um, Guillermo Escalante was the name, primary author on. Um, from just trial and error, just fucking around with stuff and having fun. And, and I was free too, in a way. And I, I owe this to Dave Henry to to not work the fact that it's not i'm not going to be winning the mr olympia i'm not going to be making a whole bunch of money from bodybuilding as a competitor i can yeah. just do it 
is for me versus me. And, and I've, and I've done shows in the past when I was literally trying to grow just because I wanted to see if, if I could harness a rebound to evoke greater progress in the long term. Mm-hmm. It's like literally, I want to do a show just for the rebound. I do the show hoping that I, you know, and, but that also gives me opportunity to play with my diet, right. high carb. I've done like super high protein before, um, to play with the peak week. I don't know how many peak peak trial runs I've probably done hundreds. Um, so, uh, all that error and all that futzing around and working with lots of clients too. And, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't futz around with them like I would with myself. <laughs> Um, never would never do that because they're they're there for results, right? If they want to sure. try something out, we do that, of course. I'd say here's some two things that I'm thinking we could do. This is the more sure shot. This is the one that might work. We don't know. You want to give it a go, and if they did, we would do it. But that's that all went into um, the things that allowed me to write the Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book and to come up with the Fortitude Training. Um, Absolutely. So. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was gonna say, why don't we uh, dive into what actually grows muscle, and that way you can talk mm. about how you design fortitude training. Because many people, especially since this is a newer generation, like they may have heard of you, but they might not understand really what grows muscle, and therefore why your training methods are so successful. Yeah, like literally mechanistically, it's still kind of a, a black box. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, we know, you know, there are certain transcription factors you tend to see activated. We know that mechanical tension is something that's important. Um, and this paradigm that was set up by Brand Schoenfeld, I think it was published in 2011, with mechanical tension, metabolic stress, muscle damage potentially being involved there. Um, the metabolic stress seems to be a surrogate for effort. Really, mm-hmm. it's not metabolic stress per se. Um, you can get lots of metabolic stress with other types of exercise that don't evoke hypertrophy. Um, and the muscle damage, you can produce tons of muscle damage. There are many ways you can damage muscle that if you did that repeatedly, you're not going to produce much muscle hypertrophy necessarily, mm-hmm. at least in the way that we would with re- resistance exercise. But there's, we can dive into those things if you want. There's some interesting sort of um, rabbit holes you can go down in terms of those two stimuli. But in terms of um, tension, and loading the muscle, I have an article that it's it's conceptually in my mind. I haven't written yet. I might publish it on John's site about Mount, I call it Mount St. Hypertrophy, basically. And I, I have a little three-dimensional diagram I, I built with a uh, with on Excel. And if you look at kind of the landscape of what produces muscle growth, um, you got your cat there on the side. I just yeah, I do. She's like being, she just <laughs> yeah. wants attention. So I'm just over it's here okay. just scratching her head. <laughs> I, I have at night sometimes. When it's if I've done late podcast and it's treat time, my little Suki over there, she'll come over and she'll she'll hit me with her nose like that on my leg, right. and I literally have to have like a little thing of treats available that I can just kind of pass to her under the table. Um, so, so I hear funny. you. So we know, especially with blood flow restriction training, that you can train with very 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 light loads, thirty percent of a one rep max, and produce growth. Um, if you go up to above to like 90% or above, you can get some growth there. You start training with those types of loads. You're going to just blow out your nervous system. Mm-hmm. You just, you just whack yourself. So, but we have this gigantic range and the thing that I'm, as I've already alluded to um, more than alluded to directly spoken to is that effort is super important there. Yep. And that's the thing I think about resistance exercise that makes it um, such a unique stimulus for muscle growth. It's outside of your normal day-to-day activities. 
most people, even if they're doing construction work um, or heavy labor, they're not doing anything remotely close to a set of squats to failure yeah, or a drop set, you know, or what have you. So it's the tension. Um, and then secondary, we know that, and this is, this is where I think science can be somewhat short-sighted. We want to talk about training, mm-hmm. but you also have to have, we know if we go into the drug side, there's a hormonal aspect to this. Um, especially if you put androgens in play and you can, I mean, you can totally look at the top amateurs and those guys are like the biggest ones and they have to be pretty tall for this to be the case. They're barely hitting 200 pounds. And we've got, you know, big Rami who's pushing 300 on stage, Ronnie at 292 or whatever it was. There's a massive difference. And there's some pros who were likely natural when they turned pro ronnie probably being one of them got his pro card at the world amateurs where he was drug tested i believe mm-hmm. um a couple other i think ty perhaps he was a natural athlete strong Corita was a natty pro for years jose raymond you know got his pro card like 12 times wasn't that many um and then he you know put on then each of these guys have put on a massive amount of body weight um so there's that aspect to it. And then, of course, behind that has to be food to some yep. degree. Um, and the overarching umbrella of all this is just having chosen right, chosen the right parents. The genetic genetics just absolutely rules the roost, you know? Yeah. I have a um, a talk that I've given now. I give it in German, too. That was the last time I gave it. And then I give it in English a few times. It's why you don't look like a pro. Mm-hmm. And it's just all examples of how much biological inter-individuality plays a role in, in everything that we see. Everything from your glycemic response to food. Very interesting study where they compared white bread with glucose. Um, maybe it was, it was maltodextrin, actually, I believe. And they there's like 20 subjects, and they posted the glycemic response curves for each subject to those two glucose sources. And it looks like a child just scribbled random curves, you know, in each of those. They're not even like, you, you know, you think these perfect, like it peaks, you know, one and a half hours later and comes down three hours later, what have you. No, they're, they're squiggly. They crisscrossing at different places. And some people it's higher for the one source versus the other. And some people it's the other way around. And that's, that's just like, there's no intermediary factors, like what fat, what kind of fat you have in there. Um, you know, did we add something to make it taste better? So you get more cephalic insulin release. That's just like plain, simple carb sources that you think, okay, at least we know this is our building block. This is going to do this. Not necessarily. Everyone's going to worry. And that's what I think explains, for instance, why some people carb up much better with certain foods. They're probably, if they're not using insulin, they may be getting a much better insulin release from certain foods that they just, that just taste really good. Um, to them or for whatever other reasons seem to impact their their insulin response really really well so you go look in the into the skeletal muscle issue and we've got um, the extent to which growth factors release we have the number of satellite cells that you have initially um, the extent to which those respond and multiply satellite cell division seems to play a role in majority of the studies that's important um the androgen receptor you have, which it's it actually is it's something that is um, inherited from your mother. Uh, it's carried on the X chromosome. So um, people like it's interesting to think about like um, uh, Hunter Labrada and Sergio Oliva Jr. You know, 
their Thanks, energy <laughs> comes from mom, not from dad. Right. You know, so, um, obviously they ha there's lots of other genetics that are involved there. Sure. A massive number. So genetics really, really play a huge role. And I think that's one reason why, for instance, it's one reason why I set up fortitude training the way I did with a higher frequency regime. What you see with most IFBB pros or people that tend to, they just blasted past their, their, um, companions, their, their, their buddies, when they're training, they just had better response to training, maybe better response to PEDs is they have great genetics. Their satellite cells tend to be, they tend to have more of them. They, they, they probably tended to have a better response in terms of those growth factors, the growth factor release, and then what happens. And that's a, from the little data that we have, that's a process, the satellite cell activity that takes five, six, seven days. So you can train, a, you can train with a pro split slash bro split, chest Monday, back Tuesday, et cetera, et cetera, once a week and make phenomenal progress if that is your proclivity. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm guessing that you don't tan terribly well. Oh, actually, I tan amazing. I, okay. The, the, the okay. base tan that I have now is after two days of being outside. My husband, though, okay. the minute he goes outside, All right. red. Good. Okay. So then we have that because you're you've done a good job of keeping yourself out of the sun then because you don't you don't have like this big you know California. You, know, you should see my my uh, check-in photos though. My okay. stomach white as my as this mouse and everything else uh -huh. is beautifully tanned. Okay, so you do tan reasonably well. So that's this is a great example. That's an adaptation. So it's per actually it's perfectly said that about your husband. He goes out, he gets the same exposure, he does the same workout in the sun as you do, and he blisters. It's way yeah. too much. If he wanted to try to tan with you. You would go outside, you spend an hour, the next day you like literally you you change two shades, right? Yep. You just wake up you're like holy shit, like what happened overnight? The tan fairy blessed you. you That's know, right. You're this bronze and goddess, and he's this blistering lobster. Yep. You know? <laughs> That's not fair, right? But if he wanted to if he wanted to try to keep up with you, he would he might do something like get it like a, a tanning. He'd hide in the in the garage, you know, he'd get a, a tanning booth and he might do like three minutes which he wouldn't blister from. He might do that three or four times a day. If, if literally his life depended on it, right? He would figure out a way to get that tan and he would put in smaller incremental doses. And mm -hmm. just that sort of thinking, you see this with, with learning tasks, any sort of adaptation that we have, that repeated exposures tend to amplify the adaptation in some degree. But if you're someone who's got great genetics, like Arnold had pretty good genetics. I think we have to admit, you know, his way of training, that's what sort of started um, uh, high volume, lower frequency training back in that day. Arnold's encyclopedia and Joe Weider pushing that. Um, that works really well for people with the best genetics. And yeah. when you think about it, just from a, on a superficial level, that's the best evidence you can have. Like we've got the best physiques coming from training in this way. So if we, if you took people like you, so you're, I think you're relatively light skinned. If you were like in a cave for a year with no UV exposure, you would probably have okay. relatively light skin, but you tan really well. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're a responder, so to speak. So if we, if we took you and said, this is the way you should tan, come to our tanning salon, like once a week, <laughs> you'd be awesome, right? You'd be on the cover of Joe Weider's tan magazine. That's right. Know, that's a tanning model, right? 
And your your husband would be, you know, he'd be the guy like who's like, hey, what the hell's going on? He's buying all the Joe Weider supplements and he's trying to do this and he's sore as shit every time. It's nothing's working for him. That was me. That was me back in the day. I, I actually there was one point when I I would I was doing 20, I was trying to do 20 sets of 20 squats. I I trained that way. I've done that workout before, right? Like whatever it takes, you know. <sighs> It just was silly and ridiculous, but I was just, my, my motivation was unlimited and obviously my recovery abilities were not. (laughs) Um, So I kind of learned that. And that's what led me to training the way Dante does, which, or the DC training two-way split is just an upper lower three times a week. Very infrequent, you know, or it's very frequent, but very low volume, probably what would suit your husband best in terms of tanning. Um, so that led led me to sort of investigate this. And I think if we put together the fact that this process of satellite cell incorporation, um, when they replicate themselves, that takes about five or six days. If you're someone who has a weak response to that and you go, go train once, you may not get anything set in motion over the course of that week. Or maybe you do, and then maybe it just recedes because you yeah. don't have a robust enough response to produce the satellite cells that set themselves up with the nuclear domains and blah, 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 all that good stuff. You may not have to do what many people do when they have a weak muscle group is they start training it more often. And they train it maybe every day. Calves are the obvious example. Calves seem Mm -hmm. to respond differently just in general. But um, the question is, is like, if you know that your weak muscle groups train from higher frequency training, I've asked people this, why don't you train every muscle group that way? And a lot of the times the answer is because I, I don't want to because <laughs> people don't want to train legs three or four times a week. And in one version of fortitude training, you train legs four times a week. You train everything four times a week, basically, which can be done as long as you're not trying to do 20 sets of workout. Right. You have different volume. I have different volume tiers in there. So you have to adjust the volume to suit you. So back to what the, your original question, what makes muscle grow It's some tensile overload in some way, shape, or form, but and some researchers will argue against the fact, the idea at least, that hypertrophy is a primary response, primary way of adapting. It there's lots of much more efficient and energetically economical ways to adapt to a strength training stimulus. Your nervous system just learns how to do the exercise. You can get much better, like you can make, newbies will make progress every time they come in the gym just for learning how to how to do a bench press or whatever exercise they're doing. They might double or triple their strength if they, if they really push it, but they're not going to triple their muscle mass. That doesn't right. happen. So changes in, in enzymes, changes in mitochondria density, changes in the myosin heavy chain forms, um, the contractile elements of the muscle, those things all, all can happen relatively easily before we start growing muscle per se right and to directly answer your question and i'm just rambling because you said before it's like go ahead and just ramble no i love i have a bachelor's of science in exercise physiology so i know all these terms oh yeah yeah amen yep right um so you got to figure out what what way of doing that because we have this wide range like what's um let's say take it back to your husband he's like oh shit there's no way i can keep up I can't keep up with her. She tans like she just tans like she must have some, you know, like southern Italian lineage or something because she tans. Something. Yeah, I tan really, really easily. Well, and I, have you ever done a DNA analysis? 
No, I haven't. I probably should okay. just out of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I think, I, I think I may have an ancestor from Morocco is what, um, some, yeah. Anyway, that's another story. Um, so he's going to look and say, okay, well, what, what taint, I got all these possibilities, lower reps, higher, higher reps, heavier weight, lighter weight, free, training frequency. You know, what am I going to choose that as big global variables? How am I going to train? And if he's not someone who can just go in there and train once and then just watch the growth happen, he's going to go in there and do it more regularly, probably. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't have a choice. He can't train. He can't do a high volume tanning session like you. Right. He can only handle the sun a little amount. So he's going to have to handle whatever he can recover from and then dose himself. Um, Dante used to call this growth, growth, op create as many growth opportunities as you possibly can in a week or in a year's time. So if you can train, um, you know, muscle, he used to do the math. You can train a muscle like every other day or three times, train it three times a week with a two way split. It's like a hundred plus growth opportunities in a week, as opposed to 52. That's right. going to get, as long as you recover, that's going to get you going there faster. And then you get into the other things other than just tension, um, like range of motion. This has been a new big topic. I just did a podcast earlier this week on that aspect. Training with in a lengthened position does seem to be important um, because that can change, at least in people that already haven't had that adaptation, that can change the length of the muscle fascicles. That will mm -hmm. change also the uh, the angle of pinnation in pinnated muscles. Seems to work better for the lower body versus the upper. I th My guess is that that might happen because especially in today's world, most people are not experiencing a wide range of motion. In fact, if you look at the hip joint versus the shoulder joint, simple example, um, unless you're some yeah. kind of crazy yogi or contortionist who can put yourself in one of those little boxes, right? Most people's hips aren't nearly as flexible as their shoulders. Right. Your shoulder, you'd fully circumduct your shoulder. And, you know, if you're, you can do backstroke, right? If you've got good mm -hmm. normal range of motion, you can't do, do that with your hip. Um, mm -hmm. Unless you're just super flexible, you've got double joints or something. So those muscles just don't typically, they're not made based on the, on the skeletal structure to experience really, really wide ranges of motion and being in stretched positions under load. Although we are meant to squat deeply, anatomically speaking, but most of us don't do that. Okay. Almost no, we don't. I mean, we're, we're kind of set up and sorry if this is a little gross to you, but we're kind of set up to be able to squat down and poop when we want to. Right. But our yeah. toilets are way high. You know, they even have like toilet risers and that sort of thing, because, you know, we're, we're, we're very untrained. We're very inactive relative to what mm -hmm. our bodies would ideally need. We, the, the epidemiology is pretty clear on that regard. And so we don't move in ways we, we should. And you see when people get injured, um, I'm guilty of this right now. I have an injury and I have to be, I, I, I literally, I've got a, it's called a moralgia parasthetica. Well, there he is. Go get a tan, dude. <laughs> My poor husband. I know. <laughs> we're, we're, we're picking on him. He doesn't even know it. Um, and I, I literally have to, like when I, if something falls on the ground, I'm like, okay, here we go. Another hamstring stretch session. And I got to bend down. It hurts but I'm doing that to maintain that range of motion. And most people mm -hmm. don't do that. We don't, we don't have, we don't train necessarily even with a full range of motion with lots of, lots of exercises in the gym. So I think full range of motion, especially on lower body exercises, when there is load in a, throughout the, the strength curve or throughout the range of motion is important. So thinking about any exercise in general, 
Full range of motion is going to be within a safe limit is going to be important because you may not ever do that mm -hmm. right during the course of a day. Um, thinking about a chest press, right. Or a chest fly, like being, being in that perhaps precarious position where you could actually tear a peck um, under tension is something that's way outside what you normally do during the course of the day, especially if you're sitting at a desk, like most people like this yeah. working on your keyboard, um, you'll, end up with shortened pecs a lot of people have i when i was doing a lot of body work and acupuncture and that's a common thing trying to get people to loosen up everything tightens up so range of motion is important tension is important um big variables like progressive overload finding the right exercise dante used to call it i'm serious again dante used to call it um getting funky with it and it's funny when i was thinking about this this idea of training and lengthens positions um, being the thing that really people are really pushing now with good reason because mm -hmm. it makes sense. Um, Dante knew long ago, he sort of came, he took this from, and John Perillo before him took this. Do you know who John Perillo is? I can't say I do. Okay. He's, he's worth looking into. I think you'd think you'd like his stuff. So John Perillo was really big on, on interset stretching. So he would have literally as a, a basis of his workouts, he's in Ohio. Good guy, good dude. Um, he uh, would have all of his clients do stretches between their sets. Mm -hmm. um, under load, like literally contracting to some degree. That was part, and it, it helps, for instance, if you want to become a good good at posing, right? You learn how to contract those muscles. It helps with muscle cold tremendously. Yeah. I think it also entrains a better mind-muscle connection. And it also pre-fatigues. Let's say you're training chest, but you're doing some sort of pressing exercise. And you tend to be a delt pusher, so your delts tend to get tired, your triceps get tired, your chest not so much. But if you start doing pec stretches between hand, now you pre-fatigue the pecs. And mm -hmm. that's that body of literature is is another little side topic we can get into. But um, pre-fatiguing, I think, still does make that muscle the weak link. As long as you can be disciplined and you have a good mind-muscle connection, you can ensure, therefore, that the exercise you're doing, if it's a compound exercise, comes to a failure point because of the muscle that you're trying to train. And he would do that. So Dante incorporated these extreme stretches where you stretch under load after you trained a muscle group. That's isometric tension. And I mean, people went overboard with some of this shit. Guys were, there were people would come to him and say, you ruined me because they, they, they would try to pick up like 200 pound. There's it's a guy who presses the 80 pound dumbbells and he's picking up the one fifties, trying to do a pec stretch and he tweaks his pec. It's like, I have no substitute for common sense. <laughs> Nothing I can do about that, man. Um, so you got to be careful, but he had people doing that. And his his calf training, you might you might enjoy this. Look up DC style calf, calf training at some point. Just talked about this on this other podcast I did. And it's all, it's under, his, his standard way of training calves is to do 20 second reps and you're spending the majority of that rep in a stretched position. Just hold my tempo for calves is like at the very, very end where like almost my anterior tib is active. Like I'll hold that there for five seconds and just, it hurts like a mother, but I believe that it works. Each of your reps are five seconds or just at the end of the set? Just at the, so each rep takes like probably eight seconds in total. So mm -hmm. it's not nearly as long, but majority of that time is in that like lengthened stretch. So I'm not bouncing out of the bottom where I actually am having that tension on that calf where it is like a mini stretch, but yeah, it hurts. 
Yeah, you could try these. They're literally, I mean, these are three, these will be three or four. If you're doing eight to 10 reps, eight to 12 reps, you're doing three or four minute sets. Mm -hmm. You're doing, you're doing three reps per minute. So you're three or four minutes. Spending, and it's brutal, but it works really, especially people, you might not benefit from it so much. Yeah. Um, and very likely you wouldn't necessarily, except that just brutally hard because you're already doing that stretching. So whatever. Yeah changes in pination angle and whatever lengthening of fascicles that you've, that you've gained from doing that stretch, you've already got that. You're yeah. already there. Um, but he had people doing that and that worked for a lot of people because most people just do the bouncy thing when they do train calves. They're like, I'm going to just train my Achilles tendon. I got this great spring here. Look how good my spring works, right? Bouncy, bouncy. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that you said that because I actually have posted many times on Instagram. I was like, Many of you guys, and this, sorry for my my foul language. If you know me, I'm, I'm pretty vibrant with and colorful with my words. Just but fucking say it. Just fucking yeah, say it. I was like, <laughs> too many of you guys look like you're hate fucking your ex instead of making passionate love to your wife. And that's how I see calf training. They're just bouncing <laughs> up and down, hate right. fucking their ex. And I'm like, yo, make some love to your wife over there. Like, that's how you should be training calves. Right. <laughs> and and this, we're going to take that analogy even further. They're not even finishing the job because they get done the hate fucking and they're like, where was the, where was the failure point? Like you didn't even like, come on, man. Was it good for you? <laughs> right. You get up and there's nothing there. I mean, I don't even I don't know if you get a pump that way. Literally, you would I can't imagine because it's all just the bouncy thing. So, um, yes. So back to back to like imagining people with that silly bouncy bouncy stuff. And we've seen it. We see it all the time. Yeah. It it happened. People cut. I mean, that's a thing. Of course, this is a common thing. I think it needs to be said. Unfortunately, progressive overload really does rule the roost. I think it's very, very mm -hmm. important. I think there's some, to some degree, form follows function. So you know, if you get massively strong, you take someone. There's really kind of un, no way of denying it. Um, if you get someone, you get a woman who's you know bench pressing one eighty five. You're going to see it in upper body, right? Or, or some of the strongest women are, are massively stronger than that. You get a guy who's squatting 600 pounds for reps, who's pulling, you know, 405 for 20 reps off the floor, who's benching 315 or incline pressing. Three, you're, they're going to be big. They may not look like Ronnie, but to some degree, you're going to have to get to where your performance is absolutely extraordinary in some way, shape. I mean, it could be with higher reps. You could do. 225 for 45 reps it's going to mm -hmm. be visible there's going to be something you're going to see now they're at the higher levels there are going to be nuances where that can't just be it right there are guys that don't have great chests who are great pressers right they need to work around that you know so they need to figure out a way to make that muscle um the weak link in whatever exercise they're doing they're biome biomechanically set up for that kind of strength but progressive overload does rule the roost i think Absolutely. So we're kind of coming up on an hour here. So for those that, you know, are really wanting to make sure that they get the most from the gym, what are some like brief key takeaways that they could kind of get from all the wealth of knowledge that you've shared with us? Oh, gosh. Um, I haven't, this is something I haven't spoken to yet, but the most important thing is finding something that's sustainable for you. Mm. This is just like diets. You yep. come up with the best diet and then like if you don't follow it doesn't make a damn bit of difference right so um i'll share a little anecdote because it looks like you like to keep it to like an hour I, I had a um trainer at my gym back in the day this is one of my favorite stories great guy super i love this guy he'd always come and ask me questions because he's always like wanting to 
like make the next leap and do something. And then he would just never get on that, on that boat. Just wouldn't do it. So always sort of wandering around, couldn't make up his mind, couldn't commit. And we decided I was, I was restarting DC training. And he said, he wants to train with me because he wants to get massive. Right. So we're doing legs. Day. It's the first day we did leg day. I go and I do my widow maker. You know what the widow makers are? I am. I am familiar with that term, but I have, I don't know if I actually have ever had like a working definition. I've just heard people talk about it. Okay. Well, Widowmaker means if, if you're a guy, you're, you're making the set look like you're trying to make your wife a widow. Mm. You're, you're making a widow and that you're going to kill yourself. You take a weight. Maybe you could do like 12, 13, 14 reps. If you're doing a 20 set Widowmaker, you can do higher reps. Like Dante had people doing 50 rep Widowmakers. Um, and then you basically pause and rest that working load out until you get you shooting for 20 reps. So you strategize the set to get as many reps as possible without putting the weight down. So if it's a squat, you get 10 reps, you might take a couple breaths, you do two more reps, take a breath, do another rep, take a breath, take another couple breaths, to another rep. That's an, those are effective reps, right? And then you're standing there, you got a spot, of course. And then you wait until you can get another rep. And then you wait again until you can get another rep. And then you wait, 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 wait until you eventually can get another rep. And you just get as many as you possibly can as if your life depended upon it. And they're just, they're just, if they're done right. And at this time I've been, I've been doing DC training for many years. So, so I knew how to kind of strategize those and make them absolutely, that's the end. Like you don't do many sets like that. You're, it's a, it will book. It will destroy you. It's a tremendous stimulus, but it also has the negative. Your nervous system can be pretty shot from it. Anyway, I do my Widowmaker on a Smith, doing a Smith squat. I finish at the bottom because I failed. I crawl out from underneath, you know, kind of grab, my, get my wind. And I look over at him to see what weight he wants. And he's not even gotten up yet. He's just sitting there. I said, what, 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 what do you want in the bar, brother? And he's like, I'm not doing that. I'm like, what? And he's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to train like that. I'm not doing that. And that was it. Like we never trained together. He did not want to do that. So he, he picked his poison and he did not mm -hmm. want that dose. Right. <clears throat> so taking basic principles like progressive overload, um, making sure you eat enough, getting your diet in place, all those things you need to determine, I think just in a global picture, how much of those things you're willing to do I don't think it's terribly psychologically healthy to try and fail and try and fail and try and fail repeatedly. Um, what that does is entrains failure. I think for many people, because yeah. they, they start learning how to give up because that's what they're yep. practicing. Um, so figure out what, what you're reasonably willing to do and figure out what your goal should be. Like the first chapter of my be your own bodybuilding coach book is about goal setting. It's like, that it has to be it. Something that's reasonable. If you're working with a coach like you, or whomever, figure out what reasonable goals are and set those yep. up and then start applying these principles. So let's say it's progressive overload. It might be, you know, I'm going to pick out one or two core exercises, maybe three core exercises that I do on a regular basis that I like to do that are good growing exercises for me. And I'm going to come back to them like once a month and just logbook and see if I can beat a best set PR. And that's my, so like every week, like, you know, for once a week, you do a PR set and see if you've made progress. So you're not going in the gym like with DC training, like every working set, you're logbooking. You're like, right. 
you get anxious, like you're the shit fucking leg days coming. And I gotta, I gotta try to do a Widowmaker with this weight. And last time, you know, I, my eye was, I broke vessels in my eye and I vomited this time when I'm going to shit myself and vomit and <laughs> have a bloody nose. Like you would get very anxious from that. And some people thrive on that. Some people are like, like my buddy Andrew was like, I'm not doing that shit. I'm not going to do it. So figure out what makes sense for you. So it's something sustainable at least to get you to where you want to go. You may not want to train like you're trying to, you know, get on stage for the rest of your life, but something you can, you can sustain long enough to get to that reasonable goal. Um, and that should be, that pertains to diet that pertains to how many days you go to the gym. Um, finding the right gym atmosphere is important. So all these <laughs> things that cultivate your internal and external motivation to, to get to a reasonable goal is important. And then you can worry about how you're going to do the science, whatever, because you can buy, you can buy fortitude training, you know, and, and start doing all those things. And if you do it for three weeks and then you, then you say, I don't want to do this anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. That's just silly. Um, some people don't want to train that way. Some people want to train with reps and reserves. They'd rather would do more sets and try to derive a stimulus from a higher volume with lower effort levels on this, on each set. And that's totally fine. That's a hell of a lot better than what most people do who aren't training at all, right? So totally cool. But just be just be honest. Know thyself maybe is my last word of wisdom. Know thyself and then apply what you honestly know. Use a coach to help you with motivation or accountability if you need that. Mm -hmm. But pick something that makes, that brings joy to your life. So train like Ronnie in the sense that you enjoy what you're doing. You know, yes. you may not like peanuts at all, right? So you don't have to train like ain't nothing but a peanut train in a way that you enjoy and then you'll keep doing it. And then you won't have this, this issue of like, oh, I keep on failing. I keep on not getting where I want to go. I, you know, there's this discrepancy between where you want to be and where you are. I think a lot of life's happiness and joy comes with accepting things as they are and, and narrowing that gap between what you want and what you have. Yep. I agree. I think that was really, really well said. And, you know, there's obviously there's benefit in training to failure, but there's not benefit in training to be a failure. And so it's having those realistic expectations and that sustainability component, because like, you know, you don't really know enough about my background and, but I used to be over 250 pounds obese. So like I had to switch everything that I was doing, but I've kept it off for going on 10 years now. So it's awesome. like, I had to do what was sustainable, but it also has a, a patience aspect as well. And like, whether or not I can turn pro Maybe I would love to, but at the end of the day, it's like, I am not a bodybuilder for the sake of a pro card. I'm a bodybuilder because mm -hmm. I love bodybuilding. And like, that's, mm -hmm. that's sustainable for me. Mm -hmm. I have a, an ex-girlfriend who lost like 150 pounds too, before I met her. So I can empathize with that. And that was a big topic, you know? So fucking big ass kudos to you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank that's you. Awesome. Yeah, got a, yeah. I got a Scott kudos. I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, you deserve it. A hundred percent. You know, that's, I'm guessing you may have a genetic predisposition or something predisposed you to that. So to come out of that is just like all the things I've done, bodybuilding, I haven't done that. Like that's something I, you know, I, I, you know, I probably would have knowing me, like I like challenges, give me the challenge. I'm going for it, but, but I haven't. So that's just, that's tremendous. That should be lauded. And, and, and I definitely do laud that effort and that, and the, 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 you are the one to talk to about adherence and, and main maintenance because you've come from that place. That's fucking badass. That's absolutely phenomenal. So awesome. Well done. I appreciate that. And Dr. I, not Dr. Scott, just, just plain old <laughs> Scott. 
Just Scott. Just Scott. Just we're, cool. we're friends. Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about either Fortitude Training, how to be your own bodybuilder, follow you on socials? Like, go ahead and plug yourself. Talk about yourself. Uh, Instagram, Fortitude underscore training. It's the easiest. Um, you can just, actually, it's pretty, it's just Google Scott Stevenson bodybuilding. It comes right up. I was I was up in Vermont. I think I mentioned to get this RV and I, there was a mechanic. Great guy. He won't listen. His name's Wit. We spent like three days trying to fix this freaking thing. So we were like literally underneath the thing and we got to know each other pretty well. And the first day we kind of chatted for a while and he likes to investigate. He's just a really, really smart guy. He came back. He's like, dude, I fucking Googled you. How fucking cool is that? And I'm like, what the hell? What did you mean? And he just like, cause he's like, your name came right up. Like right at the beginning, like Scott Stevens, a bodybuilding. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the idea. He thought that was the coolest thing. And I'm like, I didn't realize, but yeah, it does come up really well. So you can just Google me. That's the easiest way to find me. A website. Just Google. Just Google Scott Stevenson bodybuilding or Scott Stevenson meathead. I like to say that comes up as well, too. That's one of my <gasps> my, my uh, hashtags, meathead. So I love it. I love it. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. We'll have to come have you back on for another time to shoot the shit or even talk about something else that you're, you're passionate about. But until then, have a great rest of your Friday and we'll we'll chat Likewise. soon. Cool. Enjoy the weekend.